So, as we get started, I find it fitting uh, that we're going through First Peter again. A couple years ago, we went through First Peter and actually tag-teamed one of the first messages I ever preached with Rob, uh, going through the book of First Peter. And from then to now, I've learned so much. Um, just about suffering, about what it means to trust the Lord in the middle of persecution and difficult times. And I've learned so much from you guys, from our congregation. Uh, and that's how I wanted to start this message. I've been at Crossroads for around five years. Um, I've seen you guys go through floods and hurricanes and mud outs and coronavirus. I've seen you guys endure loss and tragedy, uh, persecution from people in the church, from people outside the church. I've seen you suffer. I've seen you be wronged. And I've been with you through that. And I've learned a lot from you guys along the way about what it means to love people in the middle of suffering. I think that our church has done a great job of doing that, of trusting the Lord, of trying to remain holy, um, living a life that is gracious and that points people to Jesus in the middle of dark times. So I know that I've learned a great deal uh, from our church as I've seen you guys lose things, lose materials. Your houses have been messed up, tarnished, destroyed. And you look left and you look right at your neighbors and you say, what I have is material. It's not as important as my neighbor and how they're feeling and what they're going through and what they're doing and what they're dealing with. I've seen you check in on one another as you yourself are struggling emotionally and spiritually. And you've looked at other people and said, I know what I'm going through, but it's more important that I check in on them. And that's been an incredible encouragement to me uh, in my time at Crossroads, what it means to count others more significant than yourself. Um, so I wanted to encourage you guys in that way before we get started in this passage. And I know that uh, we're not perfect and we all mess up. And God's word reveals that. And he'll reveal those things this morning, the ways that we still mess up. But I think that it's great uh, to be encouraged as we dig into Scripture. And you guys have been a major encouragement in my life. Uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys growing me and doing life with me. So, uh, with that being said, hopefully you're here to be encouraged and equipped by God's Word. Uh, and you're here to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the areas of your life where you're not trusting in the Lord fully, where you're not leaning into Him. Or, you know, hey, when these things happen, when I struggle in these ways, I know I'm not trusting Jesus. I know I'm not believing the gospel for this area of my life. So, as we talk about suffering this morning, I want you to look at verses 3 and 4. That's where we'll be starting in chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4 say this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, there's a lot going on in this verse, and there's a ton to unpack. Uh, but, Peter points out, he says, hey, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So why does Peter begin this verse by saying that the time for living the way the Gentiles do, has passed. It's because he knows that there are Christians here that he's writing to in all these different places, the elect exiles, Pontus, Galatia, 
Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia, who are struggling with these sins, and who have struggled with these sins. So, not only are there these Christians who have struggled with these sins that he lists in the rest of this verse, but Peter's goal is to make it clear that these sins are not meant to be a part of their lives anymore. Peter is pointing out that these sins are meant to be left in the past with their old lives, with their former self, uh, with the person who did not know Jesus. So, now that they know Jesus personally, they're freed from living that way. The time that he refers to is the bondage of sin and the life of slavery. The sin that they lived in before they knew Jesus, before they had this personal relationship with Jesus. And this is why Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Peter's making a point here that we are new and free from these sins. Yet he knows that he's talking to people who have struggled with these sins. He's talking to people who have others in their life who are now persecuting them because they've turned away from those sins. What's interesting about the list in this verse and about all the list of sins and commandments, things that we shouldn't do throughout the Bible, is that the sins haven't changed from then to today. People still struggle with the same things, with the same sins. People still pursue momentary pleasure and brief happiness from worldly things because they're easy, they're familiar, they're comfortable with these things. It's easy to go to those things because you can control those things. And we'd rather trust ourselves and say, hey, I know if I do this right now at this time, I'll be happy for a minute. It's a whole lot easier to do that than to say, hey, I can trust the Lord. I can find my contentment in the Lord. I know that I'll have a lasting joy and peace in Him, but I don't know when everything's going to go down. I don't have the right and the ability to make every decision. It's easier for them to just say, hey, I can get a little bit of happiness here. I can get a little bit of peace here. I can feel secure here, even if it's only for a brief moment. So, Peter's pointing this out. As we keep going in verse 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So as Peter continues in verse 4, saying with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them, he begins to get to the central issue of the passage, which is that as believers, we're called to seek a holy life. We're called to begin looking at this situation that he's describing as a war with the world. And it's not a war in the traditional sense of war. It's not where one side looks to completely get, at, get rid of the other side and the other side does the same thing. The war on sin with the world here that they're facing, that the people at this time period are facing, is that these guys are being martyred. These guys are being not just verbally abused and persecuted. It's not just name-calling. It's these people being martyred. And we'll see that later on as we get deeper into the passage, um, just to reference it very, very briefly uh, in verses 5 and 6. 
uh, when he says, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What he's doing there is Peter's pointing out, these people died. Those who are dead are, are the believers. They were judged in the flesh by men. And he says, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. So even though they're judged in the flesh by men, they're persecuted by man. He says they live in the spirit. They couldn't be separated from the Lord. Peter's drawing this very important line very early on that he wants us to get. He's saying, hey, there's the Lord's way and there's your way and you're going to be persecuted for following the Lord's way because it's going to upset people because it challenges them. The Lord calls us on our sin and we don't like it. We feel threatened by it. We don't like that. So, as these men are persecuted, Peter's making the point that they'll never be separated from the Lord. So hang on to that. Um, and the other important point that we need to grasp from verse 4 is that while typically in a war, both sides try to get rid of one another, as we talk about hardship and holiness, which is the title of the message today, for believers, our goal is not to get rid of the other side. They might hate us. The world might hate you. The world might persecute you. Our desire, our goal, is the goal of Jesus, to love people the way Jesus loved us when we were unrepentant sinners who were enemies of God. So you have one side in this war that Peter is painting here where their goal is to get rid of these guys. And then you have the other side, and their goal is love them, give them truth, serve them, show them compassion, show them grace to the point where they're baffled, which is what we're about to see. They're completely baffled and perplexed and confused. They're shocked. That's what we see. They're surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery. Why? Because the Christian life is crazy. It's radical. It's completely different than anything else that they've ever seen or that they ever will see. So, they're surprised and shocked. They're surprised and shocked for the same reason that they malign these wholehearted believers who are seeking to trust God instead of the flesh. And that's the same reason that we just mentioned. It's radical. It's different. All these things that believers do, they challenge them. They threaten their security. They threaten the sins and the idols that the ways of the world love. And at the very end of verse 4, the last thing I want us to look at is it says in the very last portion, they malign you. The Greek word uh, used here, uh, blasphemio, which means to blaspheme or to slander or to defame someone or to speak evil of them. That's the word that's used. This means, hey, these believers, they spoke evil against them. It means that people will do the same to us so we can prepare ourselves for that. We know that they also experience physical persecution because of verse 6, like we already talked about. So, they're being persecuted and they're suffering physically, emotionally, verbally by people that they know, people that they were close to at one time, people that they walked with in life, right? So, what will this look like for us? It means that people will be against us. They'll be against us and the way that you do things, they'll be against the way that you work. They'll be against the way that you think. 
It'll be against the way that you serve. Everything that you do that's godly, that reflects the gospel, they'll be against it because it's foreign to them. So they'll be against you and everything and every part of you that reflects Christ. So I think there's two very important questions that we should ask in light of this. What is the purpose of our suffering and how do we respond to suffering? Two really important questions. I think we can answer both of these questions from this passage alone. Uh, the first, the answer to the first, what's the purpose of our suffering? The purpose of our suffering is that it grows us and it glorifies God. So, hardship is a way that the Lord makes us holy, so we look more like him. And so more people are able to see Jesus' love shining through us. So, God uses our suffering, not because he always expects us to act in a holy way when we're confronted with suffering. Because if that were the case, then Peter wouldn't have had to write the book, right? If they had it under control, and they were living lives that reflected the gospel and everything that they did when people were persecuting them, when they were in the middle of suffering, then Peter wouldn't have had to write First Peter. So, God allows us to go through suffering for his glory and for our sanctification as well because we have sinful hearts. While we've been made clean by Jesus, from a legal standpoint, you're covered in Jesus' blood. You're sinless, completely clean. We know that we still sin. So we're still being sanctified. We're still a work in progress. We're still being made to look more and more like Jesus. So the suffering you face, the coworker who talks down to you and makes you feel less than, or not good enough, or the friend who turns their back on you because as a Christian, you're just not the same, you're not as fun, uh, the stranger who bows up to you, the person who confronts you, the person who speaks rudely or harshly to you, or the person who speaks about you. These are all opportunities for you to grow and for God to get the glory. So as people see Jesus in you in the middle of these situations, you're able to proclaim the gospel in the middle of suffering. And that's ultimately what the passage is about. That's what the book is about. That's what scripture is about. The gospel shining through in different areas of our lives. That's what the message is about. So you get the opportunity to explain to others how you love people so well when you're suffering and you're struggling. When other people fail to love you when you're serving them constantly. It's an opportunity. So the purpose of our suffering is that we glorify God so people see him in us and so we grow to look more like Jesus. Our suffering is meant to show us where our hearts really are. So I like to say that there are times where we respond to brokenness in broken ways. What that means is someone sins against you and your reaction is to get in the flesh. Whether that's to fall apart and to believe whatever it is that they said about you or to say, I don't like what you said about me. I have something that I'd also like to say about you, which is tick for tack, right? An eye for an eye. Jesus says, hey, the old has passed away. The news come. You don't have to do that anymore. You're a new person. You might have lived like that once. You don't have to live like that anymore. Jesus said, hey, the Old Testament was an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. That's not how it is anymore. So what's it mean then? 
when people persecute you and, and you and you suffer like that and you're hurting like that. What this means is that when we are hurt or wronged by someone else, we respond in a way that isn't humble, loving, and gracious. God has just shown us our own heart. And that while it is true that we're saved by Jesus' blood and it covers us and makes us perfect, we're still growing. You're still growing. We still have a ways to go. God isn't saying, hey, you can just sit here and stay this way. No, Christians are alive and we're meant to grow. And a great illustration of this are the serotinous cones, the pine cones. And you can think of suffering as a blazing fire sweeping through a forest. And these pine cones, they only open up and let their seeds out when the fire gets hot enough to burn the resin. That's what your heart is like. There's suffering that's meant to mature you, that's meant to grow you. Because when there's some pressure added to your life, it's just like when you have water and dirt at the bottom of a water bottle and you squeeze it. Eventually, the sand starts coming out, right? The dirt starts coming out, right? The reason that happens is because, hey, at the bottom there, it wasn't all the way clean. That's your heart. You're not where you need to be yet. None of us are. We're always growing until the day that we die. Our suffering is not just this terrible thing that we have to see. Our suffering can be a good thing. Our suffering is what points people to Christ. Suffering is what bought us our salvation. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus was the righteous who suffered for the unrighteous. We celebrate Jesus' suffering, and we can be joyous and celebrate and have hope in the middle of our suffering because we know that it will produce a greater glory for God. That's the purpose of suffering. It's hard to see it in the middle of it. The reason we talk about it now is so that hopefully you'll remember it when you're in the middle of suffering and it'll help you get through suffering later on, right? Okay, so another great illustration because God gives better illustrations than we do is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Peter says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying Jesus is the cornerstone. Yes, absolutely. Apart from the gospel, you can't do anything. You can't. The gospel is not only what saves you, the gospel is what sustains you, The reason you can grow as a believer is only because of the gospel. You have to believe it in these other areas of your life. So he's saying, you're like living stones. As you come to him, as you're suffering, you're being built up. You're being built into something beautiful to display God's glory, to point other people to him. Okay, so something that's super important is that in the middle of this, you have to be humble and you have to be sensitive to conviction And you have to be willing to say, all right, Lord, you're right, and I'm wrong. In the middle of your struggles, in the middle of your suffering, as the Lord points out, these areas where you're not following him. And that's difficult to do. Conviction is tough. I remember when I first came here five years ago, and the previous youth pastor, who was a great, awesome, godly guy that probably all of you know is Andrew Willis, and I came to youth group, and what I didn't realize was the Holy Spirit at that point in time, I now do, and I just sat here 
right there and listened to Andrew and felt terrible about myself and then didn't come back for like a month. And that's, that's how it went. And I said, well, if I feel that bad listening to Andrew, then I'm definitely not coming to Sunday morning and listening to Rob, who's been preaching for 20 plus years. Because then who knows how bad I'll feel, all right? So conviction hurts. Conviction is tough. It's not a bad thing. That's the Lord telling us, hey, you're not where you need to be. You're too far away. It doesn't have to be guilt and shame. That's Satan lying to you, telling you, hey, you're far away. Conviction and the humility that you need in the middle of conviction are very, very important. It's actually God drawing you near to him. You have to be humble and you have to say, hey, all right, Lord, I trust you in this. I can let this go. It's not as important as you are. It's not as good as you are. It's not as good as Jesus. So, conviction isn't terrible. I don't think we have the right view of it. It is the Lord drawing us closer when we've often walked far too far away. And the reason conviction is also so hard is because you're dying. The old you is dying. That sinful part of you is passing away. You're letting it die. You're putting it to death, right? The former you is going away. That's Jesus actively working in your heart. As we move along uh, to verses 5 and 6, I'm going to read these to you. Uh, it says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we've talked about how we'll suffer for holiness, and we've discussed its purpose in glorifying God and growing us. As we move into verses 5 and 6, God gives us two truths. Two truths that are super important. The first one we can misinterpret and has been used for a long time to actually damage the faith and to judge people and to bring people down and has done the opposite of what it's meant to do, which is give hope. That's actually brought guilt and shame and judgment and condemnation on people. Uh, And that is that we're meant to rest in the fact that God judges and not us. So what I mean by that... uh, In verse 5, when he says, they will give account to him, talking about people giving account to God who's ready to judge the living and the dead. We're meant to rest in the fact that God judges all believers, non-believers alike. It's not that we're adamantly saying those who wrong the believers, they need to get what they deserve because what we need to remember is we were once in their shoes. Everyone who has hurt you, everyone who has caused you struggle and pain and grief, you need to remember that you once stood where they stand. You need to remember that you were once an enemy of God. We were the reason Jesus went to the cross. We were the reason he he bared the blows, right? The fists, the whips, stripes on his back, and the cross. And ultimately the wrath of God and the separation from the person he loved more than anyone in the world. The Father. So we're the reason. We need to rest in the fact that God judges, but we also need to remember that God, who is fully just, is incredibly gracious and loving, and remember that we are also meant to be incredibly gracious and loving with those who would hurt us, 
and wrong us. We are called to forgive as we've been forgiven. So rest in the fact that God is 100% just, completely fair. We know that because Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve. That's how God saves us and yet is completely just. And in the next verse, our second point, when it says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He's pointing out, even though we die, even though these, these people died, right, these elect exiles, because they were judged by men, they couldn't be separated by, they couldn't be separated from God and his love for them. So, these Christians that were martyred, these people that were physically abused and, um, and emotionally and spiritually um, suffering, they couldn't be separated from the love of God and from his embrace. So, those two truths are very important for us to remember as we go through suffering. And Peter's point to those believers is to drive that in is that when they're mistreated, when they suffer, in this case when they're martyred for their faith, they're able to suffer willingly knowing that even if their suffering ends in death, all that means is that they leave earth to spend eternity with the Father. So now I've talked about the purpose. We've seen some encouragement, right? Uh, it's important for you to understand that you'll never be able to suffer, suffer willingly in a holy way unless you look at verses one and two and you see how the gospel motivates and empowers us to suffer to suffer righteously, to endure hardship, and remain holy. Because no matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to do anything in your own power. Not with the right heart, and not in the best way, and not in a way that glorifies God the way you're meant to. So, verses 1 and 2, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's a ton here to unpack. Uh, the first thing that we need to look at is the word therefore. And hopefully this reminds you of Rob. We need to stop. We need to look at this word, therefore. Because we've mentioned this before. One of my favorite things about Rob is that he says this. Every time you see the word therefore, you need to stop. You need to ask what it's there for. Super popular phrase. We actually should stay a couple minutes after church and practice doing that as a round. So when Rob comes back, he'll really be impressed. He'll know that you learned it, that you know that. Because it is important. When you read your Bible and you see this word, you need to understand something. God never gives us busy work. God never just says, here's some commands. Go ahead and do them. Do them. There's no motivation. There's no heart change. That doesn't happen. When God puts this word, therefore, in Scripture, it is for a reason. It is to draw your attention back to a verse that talks about God and doctrine and the love of Christ and how Jesus is not only your example and your Savior, but your motivator for everything that you do as a believer. Every single part of your life is meant to be motivated and influenced by Jesus and empowered by Jesus. We call that gospel motivation in youth group because it's easy for the kids to remember, but it's really, really good. It's super, super important. And he's right in saying it because, like I said, the Bible just doesn't give us commands. 
just for the sake of giving us commands. Otherwise, you'd be saved by the law like the Jews. Jesus said, no, I've come to give you life. I've come to empower you by the Spirit and the power of the gospel. It's the gospel that saves, not your ability to follow commands. And if that's true, then why would you stop believing the gospel to do anything, to follow any of these commands? You wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. So, Rob is right, and this word therefore is pointing us back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, which they talk about suffering, right? Let's, let's read them. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So what is Peter doing here? He tells us that it is better for us to suffer for doing good rather than to suffer for doing bad. Well, okay, Peter, that's, that makes sense. Rob talked about this last week. But then Peter tells us Jesus also suffered for doing good. Not only does Jesus know what it's like to suffer for doing good, but Jesus knows what it's like to be punished when it's not your fault. So this is what I'm talking about when you read scripture, why you need to look at the word therefore. This is what I'm talking about when we say you need to be empowered and motivated by the gospel. The gospel changes your heart. The gospel transforms who you are and what you believe, the way you think, the way you act, the way you speak, every part of your life, the way you love people, everything. What's he getting at? He's saying you suffer when you're doing the right thing. Guess what? So did Jesus. Jesus had perfect community and fellowship with the Father. And he came down to earth for us so that he could experience what it's like to be tempted. Not only did he experience what it's like to be tempted like me and you do, you know when you give in to sin, every time you give in to sin, it means that you didn't actually get to the full strength of that temptation. Jesus got to the full strength of temptation. So we often cave. Hopefully you've seen, I'm sure you've seen how temptation grows in your life, right? When you're tempted, it's not just, oh, I'm tempted a little bit, okay, and then it goes away. Oftentimes when we're tempted, Satan attacks us and the temptation grows and it gets stronger. Jesus resisted, Jesus resisted all those temptations and said no to sin. Not only did he say no to sin and live a perfect life, but then he said, I'll take the blame for everybody else. Not only will I take the blame and suffer, physical pain, but he was separated from the Father. So I want you to think about this, just so we really get this, because I think that it's really difficult for us to grasp this sometimes. Think about the person that you love the most. Think about your spouse. Think about your best friend. Think about your significant other. Think about your parents. Think about your kids. Think about the person you love the most. The most. Now think about what it would mean for you to bear their full wrath, for them to be, for them to cut you off, for them to say, not anymore. And that you go ahead and you say, I will do that willingly. So everyone else can know how wonderful it is to have a relationship with that person, with my spouse, with my child, with my best friend. That's what Jesus did for us. So when he says, I know what it means to suffer for doing good for the unrighteous. Jesus is saying, hey, I know. 
I know, you can do it. Because I did it for you. And that changes us. That motivates us. That drives us forward to love people away, in a way that they've never been loved before, that they'll never be loved. Because that's the love of God. And it is the truest, best, most beautiful, unconditional form of love. No one has experienced true love until they've experienced that love. That's what we believe, if you're a believer. So, that's what Peter's doing there. And that's why that therefore is important. We joke around, but we get you sometimes, right? Okay. So, as we keep reading the rest of this verse, we also see that Peter says, if we're going to get through suffering in a way that's glorifying to God, then we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had on the cross. So, when he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, he's saying the same attitude, the same thought process, the same mindset. That's interesting. So, we have two, two more questions to ask ourselves if you're taking notes. And I'll give you the answers. What was Jesus' mindset or thought process on the cross? And the second question, how can I make that my attitude and that my mindset, my thought process? I want that. Right? We want to be like Jesus. To answer the first question, we know how Jesus responded. We know what his thought process was when he was on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How does he do that? How does Jesus say that? Before we can dive into that, we need to look at where we are. Let's look at some examples of what we do when we feel wronged because Jesus was wronged, right? Jesus was persecuted. So let's take a minute to reflect. Let's be honest. Be honest in your own mind. When your boss or a coworker speaks down to you saying you're lazy or incompetent or incapable of performing your job, when they look down their nose at you, how do you respond? What's your flesh reaction? What's your immediate reaction? We often know what our reaction should be, but that doesn't mean that we do it in the moment. Do you get depressed? Do you begin sulking there right away? Do you tear up? Or do you get angry and you lash out and you go on the offensive? Like I said earlier, you say, hey, I got something I want to tell you. I know something about you too. I know how you messed up. And you have a few choice words to say. These responses are not proper responses to the suffering that we'll face. That's not how Jesus responded. That's not how he calls us to respond. So what are we to do? How do we go about fixing this? First, we must realize that the problem comes from us having biblical knowledge. It's in our head, but not arming ourselves with that knowledge daily. So what does he mean by arming ourselves with that knowledge daily? It means to put on armor, right? The Greek word. I wish I could even say it. So I need to take Greek. Uh, right? Put on the armor or pick up the weapon. That's what it means. You have to equip yourself with it. So think of it like this. This is, this is what we do. Somebody comes into your house, a thief in the night, right? It doesn't do you any good if you're sitting in the living room and your baseball bat or your gun is locked up in the safe. You're not equipped, are you? They're already in there. They're on you. The thief is on you. They grabbed your stuff. They stole your TV. They booked out. It's gone. That's it. 
you lost. You lost it. That's what we do. Because we're not really equipped. It's around somewhere. But we're not really using it. We know it. We sat and we heard it at some point. And we threw it back there somewhere with the rest of the files. Right? So we've done that. We know these truths. We know we're wonderfully and beautifully made. We know we're beloved. We know we're heirs with Christ. We know we're more loved than we'll ever know and infinitely valuable to God. But do we soak our hearts in those truths and take them with us every day to work? Do we take them to school? Do we take them to the office? Do we take them to the daycare when we drop our kids off and we talk to other people? Do we take them to the field? When we take our kids or when we go with other people? Do we take those things with us? Are we believing them and are we practicing them? So, just to finish this out some more, you might know that God loves you more than any man or any woman ever will or ever could. But are you not content in God and instead you feel hopeless because you're not dating someone or married to someone yet? You might know that God's approval and acceptance of you is all that really matters. But when you're rejected or you're told that you didn't do something well, are you downcast and downtrodden? When you don't perform a skill well, to feel crushed like you need to perform better? I think far too often we get upset when people speak to us about these things. They tell us things, right? Whether it's someone being rude or hateful with a desire to hurt us or whether it's just a fellow believer correcting us and we think it's not fair that they would point out our sin or our failure. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be kind, that people shouldn't speak in love, because we've preached on that before, I've preached on that before. They absolutely should. Those of you who know me, you know how important that is to me. So that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we need to ask ourselves why we're upset. Is it because we were called lazy, a sinner, a weirdo? No. It's because we choose to believe those things and we hold them as highly important. What they said might be true, right? Especially if they, they called you something or they identified you in a way, right? But here's what you need to know. The problem isn't what they said to you. The problem is that you believed what was said to you more than you believed what God said about you in his word. That's the biggest problem. And because you believe that, it means that you aren't arming yourself with the truths of who Jesus says you are. That's the problem, and as a result, you become anxious, depressed, bitter, angry, and willing to get even and lash out or to break down and collapse completely. And as Paul says, that is not the way that you learn Christ, Ephesians 4.20. So, what can we do moving forward to prepare ourselves for suffering since we know it's coming? We spend time with Jesus. That's the answer. That's the answer to question two. Uh, in case you were wondering, how do we get that mindset? You have to spend time with Jesus. So we've talked about reading God's word before. You've probably heard this in a thousand, maybe two thousand sermon applications by this point. Every preacher says, well, you just need to be in God's word and I'll fix all your problems. Right, and nobody does it. Yeah, I know how that goes. Try telling middle school kids to have a quiet time. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Okay, so... You typically hear this come up in sermons. What's the importance of it? How can you actually get something out of reading this dusty old book, right? This dusty old book. This morning, I'd like to ask you to consider something, to deeply, deeply consider something. 
I'd like to challenge you as you move into this next week. I'd like to ask you to wake up 10 minutes earlier than you normally wake up. Every morning for the next week, spend 10 minutes in God's Word and use these four questions to guide you as you read. If you don't take them down, I'll give them to you after church. I really want you to have them. Here's the four questions. Number one, as you're reading your passage of Scripture, what does this passage say about God and His character? What does this passage say about God and His character? Number two, what does it say about me and my identity as His son or daughter? What does it say about me and my identity as His son or daughter? Number three, what does this passage say about how I should live as a result of what Jesus has done for me? So again, what does this passage say about how I should live as a result of what Jesus has done for me? And lastly, how does this scripture challenge and change my thoughts, beliefs, and emotions. Okay. And that last one's super important because your thoughts, beliefs, and your emotions, they've been influenced for years now by the world and by the culture that you live in and probably not enough by the word of God. So how does the scripture challenge and change my thoughts, beliefs, and emotions? As you do that, as you read scripture and you ask yourself those questions, take time to pray and ask God how he wants to work in your life. How he wants to align your heart with his based on what you read as you go through the day. By doing this, we will begin to learn to believe the truths of God and to apply them to our hearts and lives, to these different situations. So, suffering is coming. You know suffering is coming. Rob has talked about it before. I just vividly, vividly remember Rob saying, if you're not going through suffering now, it means that it's coming. So, are you preparing yourself? Are you equipping yourself? Not only that, are you seeking to know Jesus more and more every day? Like he's the most important person in your life. So, I challenge you with those questions because we know suffering is coming. We know that the world seeks to drag us down, right? To take a bite out of us. What do you want to proclaim in the way that you respond to the world? Do you want them to see grace? Do you want them to see love? Do you want them to see Jesus? Jesus as the example and the perfect model of our faith. Because Jesus, when he was struck, when he was beaten, when he was persecuted, when he was talked down to, the almighty son of God, what did he do? He opened his arms and he loved people. Do we open our arms and love people the way Jesus did? And oftentimes, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. They're going to walk up, and they'll hug you for a minute, and they'll stab you in the back, and they'll walk away. Can you keep your arms open? Because that's what Jesus did. That's how well Jesus loved. That's how radically Jesus loved. That's what he's done for us. That's how much he loves us. So, I'd ask you to really consider that as you go into this next week. Let's pray.